Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, April 11th of 2023, where two laypersons, a pastor and an academician, gather each week to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday. Today we gather at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time, and for Charles Willard in Minnesota, that's 5.30 a.m. This Sunday is April 16th, and we're working to be faithful to year A. Here's how it works. We prepare independently in advance of the discussion after receiving some formative questions from the week's leader. And then in this podcast, we share, question, and challenge each other. And here are the folks joining us in today's discussion. Bill Hall, St. Petersburg, Florida. Ah, Charles Willard. Sarah Mickelson. Sarah Mickelson in Tampa. And I'm Don Upton. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. And our leader this week is Sarah Mickelson, and she's going to read the scripture and guide us through a number of questions. Hello, my friend. I hope you're doing well today. I am doing well. Um, happy week after Easter. Is that what we say? <laughs> happy Eastertide. Um, we're glad that you're here, and uh, we are... Um, Looking at the passage from John 20, verses 19 through 31, and uh, this is a continuation of the Easter day, um, or what we would call the, the morning of the, the evening of the resurrection. Um, so starting in verse 19, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the marks of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the marks of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were again in this house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. That ends the reading of our scripture. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Charles. So, the good news is this is the reading for all three years. 
That's really good news because it gave me the the opportunity to go back and look at the questions I had posed with this particular scripture across a couple of years' worth of time. Um, we've talked about breath, 20,000 breaths a day last year, um, which is kind of a neat idea to think about. So this week, I or this particular Lent, I was drawn to the path we've walked so far that brought us to this point. So during the past six weeks, we had four Lenten readings from the book of John. These ask us to consider contrasts. So in the first reading, we had Nicodemus, who moves from the darkness toward Jesus in the night and moves from the darkness into the light. We have a woman who meets Jesus at the well, who actually is deliberately coming at a time to to stay invisible. And Jesus um, talks to her, and she then celebrates being fully known. The blind man, once invisible, sees and is seen, which is important. And then Lazarus wakes up from death to restored life, which is what brought us to the conversation anyway about Easter. What contrast does this passage offer us for our consideration? What do you think, Bill? First of all, Sarah, thank you for sort of backing up and looking at the broader picture. One of the principles of biblical interpretation is interpret Scripture in the light of Scripture. So you're asking us to look at this particular narrative in the the broader uh, perspective. That's helpful, and I thank you for uh, guiding us. And I like the way you characterize from dark to light, from being unseen to being known, blind, and seeing death and life. Now, your question is, what contrasts, plural, does this passage offer us for consideration? In one sense, Sarah, the whole passage is a variety of contrasts. So I'm going to focus on one of those at this point and in your subsequent questions deal with some other contrasts that I see here because I think that's the overall framing of this. It's, it's consistently uh, contrasting. I will contrast in this question on death and life. Um, we, we've all heard the sermon, and I've preached them that the women and the disciples expected defeat and death. Um, and instead, they were met unexpectedly with life, with the resurrected Jesus Christ. And I think that gets at the other uh, passages you reminded us of, Sarah. Though uh, with the Lazarus, it dealt with physical death. <clears throat> the others were another kind of of death, of confusion or rejection or shame. And each of those was offered a new kind of life. Um, In one sense, a different kind of resurrection from shame to forgiveness, uh, from being devalued to being uh, treasured. Um, And, I I like this, and I'll come back to what I'm about to say later, but it says Jesus breathed on them. 
that has to do with life. We speak of the breath of life and that you may have life. And I don't know fully what that means for me or for others, other than I know that there is something each day by God's grace that reminds me uh, there is life. This past Sunday, for the first time since COVID struck here at Westminster Shores, a retirement community in South St. Pete on Tampa Bay, we had an in-person um, sunrise service. We haven't had anything for the three or four years involved. And uh, at least here, sunrise was at 712. And at 712, there was a small opening in the clouds for two minutes. We were facing east. They were stuck with me as the preacher. And we, I simply stopped and we watched for a brief shining moment the sun rising, and then the clouds covered it. Um, a reminder that there is light in the darkness. There is hope. And these are dark times in the here and now. But I find it reassuring that Jesus Christ is risen, is risen indeed. Thank you for the question, Sarah. Don, what contrast do you see active in this passage? What's, what are you drawn to? Well, the question opened up for me all through the week. I was looking at basic contrast, and then it's almost like it became a meditation on what the gospel actually does by by looking at the contrast. So I, I appreciate it. It just got bigger and bigger as it went on. And some examples would be um, looking forward within the gospels and within the New Testament uh, the locked doors it's themselves versus what's about to open up. There's an opening up in this room uh, with the breath, but what's about to happen? And John, the book is written at a time where the opening up is taking place uh, very quickly. Uh, and so we've got the locked doors and then this opening up uh, where they're going to be welcomed into other places. Other people's doors are going to open for them. It's not just them opening the doors. The doors of the world are going to be opening up to them. So there's the gospel, what the gospel actually does. Uh, I think uh, Jesus' appearances, looking retrospectively in John, that there is a contrast of Jesus, the Son of Man, walking the earth under threat. Uh, his, his promise will be worked out, but under threat. Uh, threat that actually takes place. He's tried and executed. And then this, which is still, you know, you cock your head about who is this? What is this? What is happening? But just within the book itself, Jesus before and Jesus after, and with transfiguration, Jesus eternal. And then this giant contrast of peace and violence. Um, and even though it seems to be a peaceful place, that whole setting wouldn't take place without violence. The doors are locked down. Uh, so the, this, this presence, the, the trauma, the resonance of, of violence, sitting right beside peace. So, and I, I, the extreme would be fellowship is possible 
only if it's hidden before Jesus shows up. So, yes, fellowship is good together. Locked down, hiding, locked doors. So there's a contrast because what's happening is something really different. Fellowship, the door's blown open. But it is true. Aren't there times in our lives where fellowship is only possible when we feel safe and when we're hiding? Yes. So that's turned on its head. Uh, safety is good, right? Safety is true. It's good. You lock a door. The contrast is you venture out. So there's a contrast. And uh, and that, looking at that, why are they even sticking together at all? It's so dangerous. And uh, and then we've got the isolation. And we look at the gospel, it's like isolation bad. No, isolation good. Isolation peace. Isolation safety versus the contrast of, well, the real communal opportunity is outside. So there's a huge contrast on that one as well. So I went from looking at really tiny contrast, which I think is valuable too, to thanks to your question, kind of, you know, what does the gospel actually do? And it turns all those truths on their head to a new truth. Thanks, Sarah. You know, I I, I started with um, what I call an on-your-nose perspective um on your nose is that, excuse me, is that what all that scratching around was doing <laughs> yes that's the dog um so I, well, I let, me, to... let me jump in and say for those listening on the podcast you 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 might hear breath and there's a sweet dog right outside the picture that sarah has sarah has a sweet dog and so when you hear the breath that's the sweet dog and and he's blind so he comes to where he hears people talking which means he comes to us. Um, so for me, I, I took the obvious one first, which is from doubt to faith. But it also led me down, uh, I should say, around the block to um, desolation to consolation. We saw them scatter. Now we're seeing them come back together as a disciple group. Um, we see them standing in fear, and suddenly that fear is dispelled into joy, which is, for me, a huge grappling change. Um, I thought that 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 was interesting, to stand in in reflection on that. Um, And it was, for me, again, like you, Dawn, I I walked with this um, all week, and as I did, it was like every day brought a new contrast or, or three, to consider. Um, Mary sees Jesus at dawn, a time in which the world is moving from darkness to light, which I thought was really interesting. And she moves to the light. The disciples are hiding in fear. And Jesus, the light, appears within the group. Um, I thought about Nicodemus doing the same movement. Um, I thought about the woman in well. I thought about the blind beggar, which led to my question. So it's um, frequently for me, it's the place of comfort when we have to operate in a world that's not comforting. Um, And it made me think about preparation for 
how do we become that respite or that place of, of rest for others in the journey that we're on? And, and maybe Jesus is, is illuminating that for us, um, that we are able to give a reassurance to each other, that we're able to give and, and sometimes um, just scaffolding to each other to help us um, sustain our process forward. Question number two. Today, fear seems to be driving a lot of decision-making. I had a conversation with Don about this last week, and it just sat with me all week long, that, that a lot of times the, the choices that we elect to follow are often driven by a fear of something else. Um, I'm thinking about the word shalom, and it's, it has so many meanings. And I'm thinking about the peace that Jesus brings into the room and into this conversation with the disciples. I see that movement between fear and peace. Um, Fear paralyzes, binds, and holds tight. Oftentimes people describe about being paralyzed with fear, so much so they don't know what to say, they don't know what to do, and they feel frozen. I said, but peace releases. Peace gives you the the movement and the flexibility. And I thought about verse 22, which comes right after um, John's version of the Pentecost, where Jesus breathes on the disciples. And then he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And I thought about that in relationship to being frozen with fear, or I should say activated with joy. So I wondered about your thoughts about forgiveness of sin being something that would free someone else into movement. And how does that work in your thinking? So uh, what do you make of verse 22 and 23 in light of this particular idea? Don? (laughs) Probably point that question. Who will she call on? (laughs) (laughs) I remember Sarah and I, we had a nice conversation offline last week, and I was thinking about that too. I, sometimes I, I know through friendships and counseling, and, uh, teammates, that there's always that moment where somebody goes, what audience are you responding to? What, mm-hmm. what are you from? You know, often it's, you know, some fear or something in my own head. Uh, and I think there's something there for the disciples, too. There are tangible dangers here, but they're also thinking through it. There's no doing it, you have to imagine what the danger is. And, you know, in the, in the words of lots of people in my life, that ain't living. That ain't living. But I want to get to the, the utility of it, that there's this – it's still in the contradiction question too, Sarah. I think it just – this question just builds off of that, that fear drives so much. And fear drives what I think today we would say is good or utilitarian behaviors. So if you want peace, 
in life, we're going to do things that, you know, are really contradictory to what the gospel is all about. So an example I would give would be what, what, where, what is, where is peace associated with isolation? Good. And I just want to put myself out there. I think there's just lots of things that are contrary to what the gospel is where I can go, wait a minute, it's good. There's a utility to it. I can only just in your hearts, check to see if you're with me on this. There are times where I can only find peace if I retreat. I want peace. Leave me alone. Right? Is that the gospel? I'm not, I don't know. Is it true? Yes. But is there a counter to it? I need to hide. Now, we could do that in terms of the dangers of the world today. There's parts of Europe at war. Where am I going to get peace? In a bunker. Anything wrong with that? No. Is that the peace Jesus is talking about? I'm not sure about that. Is there a counter truth to hiding? I can get peace. All right, think of our own nation. If I get with my people, my tribe, my enclave. Is there truth in that? Do I feel comfortable and peaceful? Is that the gospel? I don't know. Is there a counter truth? Uh, I can get peace if I evade. I hear that a lot. I know it's in my heart. I just want to hide from something. I don't want to be found out. Is that the gospel? Found out. Found? Jesus appears. Jesus appears out of nowhere. I'm going to get found. I'm going to get found. I'm going to get chased. And last week we talked about Jesus saying, go meet me out there. I'm not in the tomb. Go meet me in Galilee. Uh, there's a settlement. That peace? There's an armistice. That's a good example. That really peace? I could take a breath. There's a victory. My victory? There's a counter truth to all those things. Uh, this feels more like a car- incarceration. Yeah, I have peace. I've locked myself up. I have peace. Wait a minute, just a few words back in the chapter, we have the tomb. That peace? He is at peace. There's a counter truth to that. Oh, my Lord is at peace. He feels no more pain. Is that the truth that's going on? Uh, My life is done with these things. So I'm just wondering if that old saying, if that ain't living, goes along with this. I'm not putting out there that finding peace in times of risk and trauma and lack of security doesn't matter. But I think this is the counter truth with something else. We're asked to think about something entirely different. Uh, And the reminder is, Sarah, the verse you talked about, the breath, which is a reminder of commuting, communion, uh, the abiding of Christ, wherever you go, the mobility of Christ, the mobility of the spirit, like the wind. Bill Wallace used to teach our lectionary class at Palmasier Presbyterian Church, who we miss very much. Always talk about the ruah, the wind moves. Uh, it's alive and it's portable. So I'm I really back in the first question, Sarah, on contrast. Thank you. What do you think? Great job. <laughs> Thanks, Charles. Um, what do you think, Bill? Uh, I will begin. The first thought that came to me when I read this question, I think, reflects a part of what Don was saying. It, it was natural, uh, expected for the disciples to be afraid. 
I don't hear Jesus telling them they had no right to be afraid. In fact, I think what Jesus is saying, you are afraid. I hear that. I understand that. But there's more to the story than that, and he offers them peace. Uh, So it was predictable that the disciples would be afraid. The power of the state to be destructive, the power of some religious leaders. And I want to emphasize again, because there have been some conversations in my life during Holy Week uh, from people who think John, the Gospel of John is anti-Semitic. More modern scholars emphasize, I think appropriately, that we understand when it says the Jews, it's talking about that group of people, particularly some religious leaders who wanted Jesus to be killed. Uh, it's not that Jesus and the disciples were, were Jews. So I, I do not believe, there's no way we want to support any form of anti-Semitism, although Scripture has been misused tragically in that way. Um, uh, I've read an article recently in a publication called Journal for Preachers, the Easter 2023 edition, and in it is a sermon by a UCC pastor in Boston, Massachusetts, Reverend Richard Spalding, and he tells a story of a nun in a group saying that there are really two basic feelings, love and fear. Uh, and somehow one or the other predominates, or maybe both, and Reverend Spalding embraces that and adds another image that love and fear are the primary colors from which come a spectrum of human shades as wide as the world itself. I think there's some wisdom that the basic choice is fear or love. Now, to your question about verses 22 and 23, um, it, it's interesting that he so quickly, according to John's account, Jesus goes from acknowledging their fear to commissioning them, I think, or at least reminding them that there is a possible commission. He, in the original Greek, when the the words about forgiveness are not a command, they're not imperative, they're the subjunctive. If you forgive, if you retain. And I believe that Jesus is not saying that it's about work salvation. He isn't saying God retains the sins. He's saying we have the capacity, and I believe this is very true, I can choose to forgive someone or not. If I retain them uh, or if I release them, uh, that, that is my choice. Um, and I, I think this is a powerful verse in today's world, and I'll say more about it in the next question. Um, we don't – many of our leaders do not seem to be – understanding of and embracing of that concept. It's not about forgiveness. It's about power and dominance. And in many ways, being literally and in other ways, destructive. So again, the contrast there, we can choose life or death or fear or trust in God. It led me to think about 
the idea of holding on to um, the forgiveness instead of instead of releasing and being forgiven, feeling forgiven, we hold on to what we perceive to be the slight or the um, the hurt that we feel. And I, I'm thinking about that in relationship to how do we how do we respond and how how should the church respond which is kind of the next question that kind of falls naturally into this how do we respond when slighted how do we respond when threatened how do we respond when somebody comes at us and it feels like an assault it feels like a direct gut punch how do we react and respond and and how do we forgive? How do we hold on to that anger, or that slight, or that particular um, pain? Or how do we release it and let it go? Now, it doesn't mean we forget that it happened. It does mean that we have to let it not be the thing we carry with us forward. And I think that, for me, was interesting to see this interplay um, between... Um, the idea of being frozen with fear or frozen with anger or frozen with hurt and letting go of those things and stepping into the light and standing with Jesus and and hearing the conversation that, that ensues. So for me, it was interesting. I wondered if Jesus was modeling for us what it looks like, what it feels like, to um, stand on the side of forgiveness instead of the side of the slight. Um, what does it feel like for us when we're the ones that have made the slight and we can stand in forgiveness and not be held or have a grudge held against us? Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about interactions in workplaces and how easy it is to, to watch um, the destructiveness of people feeling like they don't fit in or feeling like they don't have something to contribute or or angry with somebody because they feel slighted. And I'm I'm thinking about how easy it is to hold that grudge. And what Jesus is demanding of us here is to consider what forgiveness does and what forgiveness can look like. Um I often considered Thomas and wondered is there some self-forgiveness that needs to occur? Um, you have to be willing to say, I, I made a mistake. It was my fault. And I'm willing to let go of that misstep. Because sometimes we like to hold on to our guilt. <laughs> sometimes we like to live with it, move it in, and decorate it with scarves. You know, it's kind of like the, the I will never be, you will never love me enough to forgive me for that kind of moment. And and so I'm thinking about what does self-forgiveness look like? Giving yourself permission to stand in the forgiven space instead of standing in the guilty phase. And the way that Jesus simply just shows up and says, peace be with you. Like that's a, that's a drape of forgiveness right there across the shoulders of somebody who is standing alone and in the cold. And just with those words, relationships are restored. 
And and what do we take away from this if this is our model for how we step into conversations and just go, I'm here, I'm ready to have a conversation with you because I value you. And that might move the conversation away from the hurt or away from the anger, away from the need to choke a throat toward the whatever we're going to do, we're going to do it together, we're going to move forward, we're going to figure this out. I was reminded of this this week when National Public Radio did a piece on where things were 20 years ago, 30 years ago, um, at the end of the Troubles, when people sat down and negotiated a standing piece um, in Ireland. And, and the stories that came out of that, how rich that has been, and what a gift it has been to, to revisit this and see the commitment of the people that decided to stand together and, and work toward a living peace that, has, that brought some um, security to a realm that was completely distraught with violence. And I thought, there's something interesting there. There's something really powerful to say, yes, I've been hurt in the past, but I want to stand with you and, and start something different right here, right now. And I think that's a model. So for me, that's what I liked about um, that particular phrase and how it how it works with the idea of um, Jesus reminding us that we can paralyze and be held hostage by um, fear and by guilt and by shame. And that he's, he's brought this into the, the conversation that you need to all work together. Um, and relationships are restored. So that, for me, it was a sweet connection that I hadn't made before. Um, my third question, Thomas is a twin. We're reminded of that in the scripture. We are never given any information about who's twin. This story um, presents the reader with the idea of twinning and across scripture uh, scripture and across time and literature, I'm sure Don will say, hmm, this means something. There are duplications, repetitions, and parallels in this particular reading and with the reading from last week, um, which was when Mary runs to the disciples and says, he's risen, I've seen the Lord. it has been suggested that when something is reiterated in Scripture, it holds more significance for us as the reader. What do you make of this, and to which reiteration are you drawn? What do you think, Bill? Uh, I will quickly highlight two. One is doubt and faith. Uh, we've discussed this before. Uh, Frederick Beekner, who died recently, uh, said, in part, if there's no room for doubt, there is no room for me. I, th- I stress this because we need to be careful that we don't hear Jesus saying, you should never doubt. I think what he's saying is don't be captured by them. Uh, there's, there's, um, what's his name would say, uh, the rest of the story. Um uh, so I, I will quickly acknowledge that and move on. The, that for me, the most powerful twinning juxtaposing in this passage 
is the seen and the not seen. The, the, by my count, some form of the verb to see or reference occurs at least seven times in these 11 or 12 uh, verses. And we stressed before, seeing is not just physical, but it's understanding. Um, I love Ray Stevens' song, Everything is Beautiful in Its Own Way, in which he says, and I will change his gender reference, there are none so blind as they who will not see. My takeaway from that is those who choose not to see. Uh, And the lead into that is... Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. And that reference to twinning, sadly, powerfully, Sarah, reminds me of a contemporary twinning. Children have been and likely are being killed in the war between Russia and Ukraine. Children are being and sadly will be killed, even in schools in this country. Um, I think there is a blindness to um, the reality of violence, and I think that that blindness is leading to an enabling and equipping of even more violence. So I, I realize I'm ending on what for me, honestly, is a very scary place. Don, what do you think? To what reiteration or or repetition or twin are you drawn? Well, yeah, I love this subject. And I think every year I I start by saying, uh, move forward with care. You're not a twin. You know twins. And that can be uh, insensitive and rough in terms of utilizing stereotypes, uh, mysticisms related to twins. So move forward with care. On the other hand, in literature, in the broad use of twins, when twins walk in a room in literature, pay attention. Pay attention. Whether it's Mark Twain or ancient literature, pay attention. Something's going on. But it's not meant, I believe, to deal with twins as we know them. It's much. It's meant to deal with our hearts. It's meant to. It's meant to be about us, the reader, or us, the listener, and our perceptions and our misperceptions. So I'll just throw out a few ideas, and I think this question is always great for class discussion around tables. I mean, there's just no limit to what we can do with this. And many of these ideas are as ancient as language. Uh, so let's see. One, I, Don, believes that the twin could be that Thomas looks a lot like the Lord. You know, you're the twin of the leader. And I, and I won't go into a lot of detail, but play that out in the room with locked doors. Why do you call him twin? Well, isn't it obvious? He looks just like Jesus. <laughs> I like that. Son of man. Son of man. Human. Looks like somebody. Of course he does. Of course he does. Of course he looks like us. Got a nose right there. He's got ears. So he, I, I, I think that's powerful. So I, I choose to do that. There's nothing in the gospel that says that, but I choose to say that. I think 
There's the twin of Thomas himself, the echo of Thomas's own words. Uh, not that that's what they weren't calling him that, but I think in, in terms of the idea of twin, uh, it's like if you go to a large canyon, what are you going to do? Hello, 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 hello. It's me. It's me. It's me. I'm Don. Hello, Don. Hello, hello, hello. Talking to myself. Who's that talking back to me? It's me. Am I the same person two hours from now? I have a meeting in two hours. Is somebody going to go, you know, you're just not who I thought you were? Twin. twin. That's called twin. Are you who you say you are? Are you? Are, and who is this? The man who wants proof, who doesn't believe, and then he does believe. Who are you? Who are you? What does it take? I like, I like that, too. My dad used to be in broadcasting. He was on TV every night in the 7 o'clock news. And when people would meet him on the street, they'd go, you know, you certainly resemble yourself. Because he's two people. <laughs> he's two people. Do you resemble yourself? Does Christ resemble Christ when he reappears? Apparently not exactly. He kind of resembles himself. But what needs to be taken, what needs to be done? Uh, so, uh, so when twins walk in, pay attention. Thomas also is my twin. Thomas wants uh, proof. All right. There he is. This is my brother. That's my brother. No, he's my son. He's my son. Oh, <laughs> hey, hey, how you doing? Nice to see you. So, you know, Jesus also is, I mean, Thomas is also my twin, my brother. Uh, so I, I, uh, I think we could go on and on and on and on and on with that. But there's a lot of gospel in there. But I just want to say again, it's about in, in the literature that I read where twins walk in the room, it's not about them. It's about what's in our heart when we look. Thanks, Sarah. Oh, I like that idea. Um, I landed in the camp of Thomas is my twin. Or he, he represents an every man or every person in this particular conversation um, who might come late to the party. Whether it's by chronological time or um, a, a moment where there's a delay in connecting the dots and seeing the meaning for ourselves. Um, so in the end, I'm going to quote Jamie Clark Souls from WorkingPreacher.org. She writes, in the end, it's not Thomas's doubting or demanding that matters. It's his believing. Everybody doubts but not everybody believes. In believing Thomas, push as hard as you need to until you are awestruck and moved to proclaim with him, and Don, this is your favorite line, my Lord and my God, which is such a sweet moment um, that we stand in. That's all I got. Great. Thank you for those questions. And uh, as we uh, we wrap up, uh, just want to say the questions that we develop every week, and there's always a lead every week who's responsible for about three, four hundred questions. We do that because we know there are moderators, facilitators, teachers listening, thinking about what to put before a group, for example. So we offer that up to you, uh, and it's a chance to test every week what might work. Uh, when you throw those ideas out there. Uh, so 
Palmasia Presbyterian Church makes this podcast possible. They're at 3501 West San Jose. That's in Tampa, Florida. And for more information, you can go to palmasia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A.org. We commend that site to you because they're great sermons, other discussions, disagreements, uh, prayers, outstanding music, the opportunity to take communion. So check that out, and you're always welcome, and we'll see you next time.